Okay. Hello and welcome to Sport Professor Podcast, the show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will once again explore the intersection of sports and law as we deep dive negligence and athlete liability. Beginning with a quick reminder of the definition of negligence and the legal elements that encompass it, we will then move to discuss how the historical view of athlete liability has evolved over time before dissecting three key court cases and then applying the discovered case law to a well-known modern-day example of athlete-on-athlete violence. So, have you ever wondered if athletes can sue one another for their actions on the playing field, or why teams and sport managers should even care about such lawsuits? This is the podcast for you. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast. Today, I want to do something a little bit different. While we've studied sports law in many past podcasts, looking at the historical context that has led to laws being passed, and even examine how that law has evolved over time through citing and discussing particular circumstances that has given rise to lawsuits, we have yet to fully dissect and examine case law to establish what the courts have said about the application of those laws within the context of sport management. Well, today we're going to do that. We're going to discuss the idea of participant versus participant liability, discuss situations in which one athlete has sued another athlete for misconduct on the field. And in doing so, we're going to apply the legal elements of negligence, a topic we've discussed in past podcasts, but not in this way before. Before we do that though, what I want to begin with is just reminding you about this idea of negligence. Negligence falls under another law, which we call torts. I always find torts as an umbrella term that covers a number of different types of laws. We define torts as a private or civil wrong or injury suffered by an individual as the result of another person's conduct. A couple of key aspects of that definition. We First off, a private or civil, so we know we're dealing with civil lawsuits, in which case the plaintiff is an individual that is accusing the defendant of harming them in some way. And in a tort lawsuit, what we're looking for as the outcome is we're looking for a correction of the wrongdoing. Now, normally, for torts specifically, that correction of a wrongdoing is monetary relief, money paid to me for damages or injuries that I have suffered as a result of the defendant's conduct. But under this umbrella of tort, we said there's really three different types of law that all apply to the field of recreation and sport management. We said the first one is what we call intentional torts. We can also call these civil assault and civil battery. We said that there's this idea of reckless misconduct, also called gross negligence. And then the one that we've spent the most time talking about are unintentional torts, what we've also labeled as negligence. And we've moved on and we've talked about the definition of negligence. We said that negligence is the failure to use ordinary care and caution, as would be expected by a prudent person for the protection of others against an unreasonably great risk of harm. There's a couple of really key aspects to this definition. The first one that I always point out is this idea of a prudent person, because this can be a tough thing for people to understand. What are we talking about when we say a prudent person? Well, what we're talking about is the mere image of the defendant. So in a negligent lawsuit, one of the things that we consider, one of the things we examine is how would someone else with the exact same training, background, education, experience, how would someone else with all of those characteristics that are identical to the defendant, how would they have acted in that situation? The classic example is the idea of a medical malpractice lawsuit. Medical malpractice is a form of negligence, and one of the things we're assessing in there is what would another doctor, what would another physical therapist, what would another dentist have done in that situation? Would they have acted the exact same way? Or would they have done something different? And if they would have done something different, 
could that act, could their different actions that they took, could that have resulted in the plaintiff not suffering the damages that they did? So we always are looking at the defendant with this prudent person standard, and we're always assessing would a mere image, a person with the exact same background, experience, education, etc., would they have done the same thing? So that is an important part of negligence. The other important part of the definition that I always talk about is this idea of a protection of others against unreasonably great risk of harm. In sport, in recreation, a lot of the activities that individuals engage in have a certain amount of risk associated with them. In negligent lawsuits, what we're looking at is are the actions of the defendant making that risk unreasonably high? Or are the actions of the defendant no longer protecting the individual, the plaintiff, from the risk involved? And so those are some good background things to keep in mind as we go throughout our conversation today. The other thing we need to remember about negligence are the legal elements that make it up. Just as a reminder, when we talk about legal elements, what we're saying are these are the things that the plaintiff has to prove in court. Remember, with a civil lawsuit, the burden of proof, the person that has to show that these things occurred, is the plaintiff. So the first of the four legal elements for negligence is that there has to be a duty of care owed by the defendant to the plaintiff. When we break that down more, what do we mean by duty of care? Well, before we even answer that question, we have to go and look and establish, was there a relationship between the plaintiff and the defendant? If there is no relationship, then by definition, there can be no duty. So how do we determine if there's a relationship? First, we can look at what we call inherent relationships. Inherent relationships are relationships that are inherent to the titles that we hold. In other words, based off the title that the plaintiff has and the defendant has in a situation, we can assume that they have a relationship with each other. The classic example in sports is the athlete coach. The coach holds that title of coach, the athlete, the people playing or participating in the sport, they have that title of athlete. Based off of those titles that they hold, they have an inherent relationship. And as a result of that inherent relationship, the coach and the athlete have to act in a certain way. They have certain responsibilities that they have to uphold. In sports, we have a ton of different labels that bring about inherent relationships. So as I said, coach-athlete, athlete-athlete. In your playing a sport, you have an inherent relationship with the other people who are playing the sport at the same time. So because of that relationship, you have to act in a certain way. We'll talk about that more later. What about if we take a step back and we talk about the event as a whole that might be occurring? So we might have a soccer game. The athletes have relationships. The coaches have relationships with the athletes. We have relationships between the referees and the athletes, the referees and the coaches. But we also have a manager that's putting on that soccer game, someone who's overseeing that event. In high school, that would be your athletic director. And so the athletic director has an inherent relationship with the coaches. The athletic director also has an inherent relationship with the athletes. Well, if we're having an event, we also have fans at that event. So the title of fans and athletic director, there's an inherent relationship there. Fans, event coordinator, or event operator, or stadium manager, all of those titles bring about relationships with the fans or the spectators who are attending the event. All of these relationships are inherent relationships and if you're in an inherent relationship, you have a duty or responsibility to act in a certain way. You can also have a relationship, though, that we call a voluntary assumption of a relationship. In this case, I don't hold any particular title with anyone else, but I act in a certain way or I choose to act in a certain way, which binds me to that individual. And as a result, now I'm required to act a certain way. So with voluntary assumption relationships, think about if you were just walking down the sidewalk as a pedestrian. You're just walking to class, walking to your job, walking into the store, wherever. And all of a sudden, someone on the other side of the street collapses. You don't have to do anything. You can literally just keep walking because you have no inherent relationship with them. You have no connection to that person. However, let's say you're trained in CPR and first aid and you want to be a good person. You see them collapse. So you voluntarily choose to cross the street to see if they're okay. As soon as you volunteer or act towards that individual to see if they're okay, you now have a duty 
you now have a responsibility to act in a certain manner. What manner? Well, that depends on you. If you're trained in CPR and first aid, you have a responsibility, you have a duty to act according to your training, to act just as any other reasonable, prudent person would in that scenario. What's a reasonable, prudent person? Again, it's that mirror image of you. That individual would have CPR and first aid training. So they would know the first thing that you do is you assess the situation. You determine if there's any risks that are around that could result in you being injured as well. After you do that, you ask the person if they are okay. Depending on how they respond, that dictates what you do next. If they don't respond at all, you tell someone to call 911, and then you start checking their ABCs, their airway, breathing, and circulation, and you proceed along those lines. So I don't have any relationship with that person as I'm just walking on the other side of the street. But if I choose to act, to go over to try to help them, I'm voluntarily assuming a relationship in that moment, and now I have a duty, now I have a responsibility to act in a certain way. What ways you have to act, that's the conversation we're going to get into today in just one minute. Before we get into that, though, let's highlight the other three aspects of negligence. So we have a duty. The second legal element is a breach of that duty. So you have a relationship with the other individual. Based on that relationship, you have to act in a, court in a certain way. And the second thing we look for is did you act how you were supposed to? Did you do the things that you should have done in that situation? We then assess, if you didn't act the way you were supposed to, we then assess whether the fact that you didn't act the way you were supposed to caused, the third legal element, any damages to the individual. So we have a duty based on the relationship that you have with the individual. We assess whether you breached that duty. And then we ask, did the breach of that duty cause any specific damages? That's negligence in a nutshell. Those legal elements aren't super complicated. They're not super hard to understand. Where it gets more difficult is when we get into looking at specific scenarios. When we get into really talking about those relationships and the responsibilities that come from those relationships. And that's what I wanna dive into with the rest of this podcast. I wanna talk about the relationship that is by far the most important and quintessential one in all of sport management. The relationship that if it did not exist, sport would cease to happen. And that is the relationship between the athletes, or as the courts have called it, the participant-participant relationship. But before we get to how we view it today, I think it's important for us to take a step back and look at the historical view of liability of participants in sports. So, to begin with, we need to understand that the traditional view of liability as it relates to participants is that injuries were just a part of sport, were a part of recreation, were really a part of any type of physical activity. The courts, historically, we go back pre-1975, back into the early 1970s, back into the 1960s, the courts ruled continuously that if an individual was hurt playing soccer, playing football, playing basketball, playing softball, playing volleyball, playing whatever sport, if an individual was hurt playing that sport, the courts ruled that injuries were part of the game, so the individual that caused the injury cannot be found to be liable, cannot be found to be negligent. And that kind of made sense back in those times, back in the early 70s into the late 60s. But over time, starting in the mid-70s and moving really into the 80s and 90s, that view slowly started to change. And it changed because of four key things that happened. The first th key thing that started to happen is we started to see an increase in the number of injuries involved in sport. And that's due in large part to two factors. First, we had an increased number of people playing sports. 1972, we have Title IX passed. It takes about 10 years for Title IX really to go into effect as it applies to sport and for us really to start seeing changes. But once Title IX is passed and we start to see those changes really 1982 onward, we have more women participating in sports. We also at the same time have more men participating in sports. In fact, for 30 straight years, up until last year, for 30 straight years, we saw an increase every single year in the number of high schoolers who played a sport which if we have more people playing, injuries are going to happen more frequently as well. In addition to that, 
The second factor that leads to an increase in sport injuries is an increase in the number of sports and type of sports that we are offering. We started to see in the 80s an increase in more extreme sports, or what we would deem extreme sports back then. And those more extreme sports actually drew in a large portion of people that as they're participating in those more sports options, which are more dangerous, they're going to be having more injuries. So we start to see an increased number of injuries, which means also an increased number of people who have medical bills, who have expenses that they might not be able to afford, or they don't feel that they should have to pay because someone else did something that caused their injury. The second thing that's occurring around the same time that we're seeing the increased number of injuries is we're increasing the level of commercialization in sport. So what is commercialization? Commercialization is the process of taking something, can be anything, and making money off of it. So in sport, back in the 60s, back in the early 70s, we didn't have a lot of money influxed into sport. We had our professional leagues. We had college sport, which was making money. But youth sport was youth sport, was done more for the participation, for the fun, for the enjoyment, for the benefits that the youth participants could get from it. That slowly starts to change. We see more and more sport-based companies start to develop. We see more companies outside the field of sport start to realize, oh, wait, if I attach myself to sport, if I attach myself to a high school, to an athlete, to a professional team, and I use them to help promote my product, I can increase my sales. And sport organizations love that because that influx of money allowed them to operate better, allowed them to expand their operations, allowed them to attract more individuals, allowed the people working for those companies to make more money. And as people slowly start to shift and put more money into sport, it becomes a much more commercial endeavor. To the point now where we have high school basketball and high school football games on ESPN. We have high school athletes all over the place. We have youth athletes where we're tracking what colleges they go to and people are making money off of websites that are promoting them. The commercialization in sports has grown to almost a ridiculous standpoint. Why does that matter when it comes to lawsuits, though? Well, if you're going to sue someone who only has $100 in the bank, the max amount that you might be able to actually get is $100. Now, you can get awarded more, but if they don't have the ability to pay it, that money's never going to come to you. However, if I sue a company like Nike, like ESPN, like Sports Illustrated, who has millions of dollars in the bank, I have a much greater likelihood to get way more money. So as more money starts to come in to sports, as sports grow more and more commercialized, when an athlete got injured, the likelihood of them actually receiving money from the organization, especially a large amount of money, increased substantially. People started to go and look at how much money all of these commercial entities that were involved in the sporting events had and started to realize, hey, I might be able to make money off this. And not just the person who was injured, but also the lawyers. So not only did we see an increased number of injuries, we saw an increase in growth and commercialization in sport right around that same time, late 70s into the early 80s, which meant people were more likely to try a lawsuit because the potential payout from the lawsuit was much higher. But those two things don't really matter unless we have the third element. And that third element was one particular court case. The ruling in one court case ends up establishing legal precedent that makes it easier for athletes who are injured to file a lawsuit and collect money claiming the person who injured them was negligent in their actions. And that lawsuit is Nasby v. Barnhill. And I want to take a second, because this is such an important lawsuit, I want to take a second and I want to break it down. I want to provide you with the legal history, the key facts of it, and then talk about what the court actually said. Because this is a turning point lawsuit. So Nasby v. Barnhill was a case that was filed back in 1975. Again, everything's happening right around the same time. It ended up getting appealed up to the Illinois Appeal Court where a final decision was reached. The plaintiff in this case was an athlete named Nasby. The defendant was an individual named Barnhill. The plaintiff, Nasby, had sued Barnhill for negligence and battery. The one I want to focus on today, though, which is important for our conversation, is the negligence claim that they make. Initially, the court ruled for the defendant. 
and we'll talk about why here in a second. But that's that's just the legal history. That's just kind of dipping our toe in the water. Let's now get into the key facts. Let's now talk about what actually happened that led to this case being filed in the first place. It's important to know that Nasby B. Barnhill, the incident that started everything, happened during a soccer game. The plaintiff was playing goalie. The defendant was a forward on the opposing team. Now, back in 1975, the rules of soccer were a little bit different. In 1975, it was legal for one of your own players to pass the ball back to the goalie, and the goalie could bend down and scoop up the ball. That rule didn't change until the mid-90s. So, again, time makes a difference. In this case, both Nasby and Barnhill were high school-aged. They had some experience playing soccer. They knew the rules. One of Nasby's teammates passed the ball back to him. As a result of that pass back, Nasby bent down on one knee to scoop the ball into his arms. Nasby was inside the penalty area when he did this, and as he picked the ball up, Barnhill, the forward on the opposing team, runs in and swings his leg to kick the ball and ends up kicking Nasby straight in the head. Nasby is knocked out, falls over, suffers brain trauma and a severe injury. One of the things we have to consider within this is we have to know the rules of the game. We have to know the rules of the sport. As I said, 1975, it was legal for a player on your own team to pass the ball back to the goalie and the goalie to pick the ball up. The rules of the game for soccer, for those of you who don't know, also prevent all players from coming into contact with the goalie while he is in possession of the ball within the penalty area. For those of you who don't know soccer, I always say, think of it as a receiver in football. We have this idea of a defenseless individual, a defenseless receiver. The fact that when they're going or reaching for a pass, they open up their body in a very defenseless way to individuals to hit, which can cause serious injury. In soccer, it's the same thing. The goalie is acting in a certain way, oftentimes, where they're reaching out for the ball not being able to protect the rest of their body from harmful contact. So the rules of soccer are in place to prohibit individuals from coming into contact with the goalie while they are in the penalty area. In this case, Nasby is in the penalty area when he is kicked by Barnhill. The last key thing to say, and this is something that the court points out, when they're discussing what happened. I slightly disagree with it, but the court points it out, so it's an important fact. The justice in this that wrote the opinion said, goalkeeper injuries in soccer are rare. In large part, what he's saying is, the rules are in place to protect the goalie, and most people abide by those rules. That's how I interpret that. So those are the circumstances. Ball passed back, Nasby the goalie scoops it up, Barnhill comes in, trying to kick the ball, Swings, misses, ends up kicking Nasby in the head, knocks him out, causes a severe injury. As I said in this lawsuit, Nasby sues Barnhill, claiming that Barnhill was negligent, claiming that Barnhill violated the duty that he owed to the other players on the field. So the first thing we have to do when we're assessing any lawsuit, but particularly for this one, is we have to assess the four legal elements of negligence to determine whether Barnhill was in fact negligent in his act. So the first legal element, we just said, duty. How do we determine if there is a duty? Well, first, we have to ask ourselves, is there a relationship between the plaintiff and the defendant? No relationship means no duty. So is there a relationship? Yes. It's an inherent relationship. Based off the title that the plaintiff and the defendant hold, participant, participant, we have an established relationship. So then what we have to do is we have to go and look at the case law, the legal precedent from past decisions that have been issued, and the statutes, the legislation that has been passed to determine what that duty is, to determine what those responsibilities are between athletes when they play a game. Well, the court did this, and in the decision, the judge said, quote, there's a legal duty of the player to every other player on the field to refrain from conduct prescribed by a safety rule. In other words, when you play a sport, you have a duty or responsibility to everyone else on the court, on the field, in the arena. 
you have a legal duty to make sure that you are prescribing, that you are living up to the safety rules of the sport. So we now know that there was a relationship between these individuals and that as a result, there was a duty that existed and we understand what that duty is. We move then to assess the second legal element, which is, was that duty breached by the defendant? So how do we determine if that duty was breached? The first thing you need to think is, what would another person have done in that situation? What would a reasonable, prudent person, that mere image of Barnhill, what would they have done in this situation? Would they, in other words, would they have swung for the ball and ended up kicking the plaintiff, Nasby, in the head? We also need to assess the risks that are involved within the sport to determine if the actions of the defendant increased the risk of injury. So those are the two questions we have to ask when we're looking at a breach of duty. Again, we can go to the court ruling and see how the judge assessed this. And the judge determined that, yes, there was a breach of duty because, and I quote, the defendant showed a reckless disregard for the safety of other players. They note that there are risks inherent in soccer. It is a risk that you can be kicked in soccer. The goal or object of soccer is to kick a ball into your opponent's goal. So there's a chance that as I'm kicking the ball, I could kick another person. But what the court is saying here is not just that Barnhill kicks someone else. That's part of the game. So I'm not breaching any duty. I'm not increasing the risk. The judge is saying, hold up. You acted in a way, a reckless way that was so beyond what a normal person would do, what a reasonable, prudent person would do, what that mere image player would do, you acted in a way that no one else would have that was reckless. And by acting in that way, you actually increased the risk that you could cause harm to another individual. The rules stipulate that you are not supposed to come to contact with the goal. The duty signifies that you have to abide by those rules and you have to act to try to keep the players on the field safe. The judge ruled that Barnhill breached that duty because they act in a way that was so reckless that no reasonable prudent person would have, and it increased the risk of harm so great that he, Barnhill, was not living up to his responsibility to the other athletes, other players on the field. So the judge said, yes, there's a duty, and yes, Barnhill breached that duty. Now we have to move to the third and the fourth element. And I always tell people, you have to view these two elements together. Because what we're asking is, did that breach of duty, did the reckless acts of Barnhill directly cause any damages? Well, the easiest way to start with this is to first say, well, were there damages? Yes, there were. There was severe head and brain trauma suffered as a result of Barnhill kicking Nasby. So we know there were damages. We know there was a breach. Now we just have to determine whether that breach caused the head injury. The easiest way to do this is something in law we call the but-for test. With this, we say, but for the actions of the defendant, would the damages have occurred? In terms of our conversation with this case, but for the actions of Barnhill. So if Barnhill had never swung his leg or acted in a reckless way, if we remove that from the situation, would the damages have occurred? Well, if we remove the reckless act, there would have been no damages. So that means there's a direct link between the act and the damages. For this case, that means there was causation. As the judge said, the reckless act of the plaintiff caused significant head injuries. So we have a duty. The court established that that duty was breached and that the breach of that duty directly caused damages. So the final determination is we have all four legal elements necessary for the plaintiff to win. But that's not where a court case stops because we don't just get one side getting to make their argument. The defense gets to make an argument as well. And the defense's argument is one that is extremely common with participant versus participant lawsuits claiming negligence. And that is this defense of assumption of risk. What the defense said was, yes, our player, Barnhill, kicked Nasby. We don't argue that. But when you play a sport like soccer, you run the risk of getting kicked. Play a sport of football, you run the risk of getting tackled. When you play basketball, you run the risk of someone elbowing you. They said that risk is inherent to the game. 
And so the goalie, Nasby, knew of that risk when they stepped on the field. As a result of them choosing to play, they are assuming or taking on that risk, and they are saying that they are okay with it. It's a defense we call assumption of risk. And that's what Barnhill's lawyers said. They said Nasby knew of the potential injury and chose to play. Therefore, he's taking on a responsibility. He's assuming that he could be injured. We have the legal elements, but we also have this defense. The question you should be asking yourself now is, which way did the court rule? Well, the final verdict was for the plaintiff. What the judge said was that assumption of risk only can go so far. Yes, when you play a physical sport, there is contact that can occur, and there are certain injuries that are inherent with the game. For example, if I'm a forward and I'm going into a 50-50 tackle with a defender, meaning the ball's right between us, we both run to it at the same time, we both kick the ball at the same time, there's a risk I could get injured in that case. That's an inherent part of the game. If I remove that ability to go for a ball that's right in between us, the game is no longer the same. Therefore, if I remove that and it completely changes the sport, then that risk is inherent. But the risk of a goalie being kicked in the head is not inherent, the court said, because the act that's required for a goalie to get kicked is so beyond the scope of the rules of the game, it's so reckless that I as a goalie, cannot assume another player is going to do that. Therefore, you cannot assume all the risk involved in a physical activity. I can assume some of it, the known risk that's stipulated by the rules of the game, but I can't assume every action. If we take this even to a further extreme, think about soccer. I said the object is to kick a ball. Well, I can't then just go start punching people in the face. That's not a part of the game. That's not anywhere involved in the game. If I remove the action of punching people from the face, we still have the exact same game. The game hasn't changed. So just because I play it, I can't assume that someone is going to punch me. It's a reckless act that falls well outside the rules. So you can only assume the risk that an inherent part of the game the court said. And as a result of that, as a result of dismissing this defense of assumption of risk, the court decided that Nasby was right, and they ruled for him. They said a legal duty does exist. And the defendant breached that duty, leading to serious damages. Thus, they reversed the trial court's opinion, and they ruled for the plaintiff. So just to recap, we said there's an increased number of sport injuries, more people getting injured, increased amount of money, commercialization involved with sport. Now in 1975, we have this Nasby v. Barnhill decision issued, where we have case precedent now saying this is the duty that is owed from one player to another. The last main fact that has brought us all the way from that traditional view in the early 1970s to where we are today is the increased reliance we have in America on our judicial system to solve disputes or to solve our problems. A simple way of saying that, America is a very litigious society. We sue people for everything. We go to court for everything. We ask judges and juries to fix our problems, to solve our disputes. So when I combined all four of these factors, the fact that there's more sport injuries, the fact that there's more money within these corporations, the fact that the courts have ruled and established that participants have certain duties towards each other, and the fact that people go to court more than ever to solve their problems, we end up in a situation where if you injure someone while playing a sport, there is a very serious risk that that person you injured might try to sue you for negligence. If that happens, what you need to know, especially as a sport manager, is what is the legal duty of the participants. And that legal duty, as we said, as established in ASVB Barnhill, is that participants have to abide by the safety rules of the game. If they act in a reckless manner with disregard for the safety rules, then they have breached that duty and if that breach caused damages, then they will lose the lawsuit. I want to look at a couple other court cases that happened very close to this NASB one to show you how this legal precedent slowly got built upon to get us to where we are today. The first one I want to look at is one called Bork versus Dulichin. In this lawsuit, we're going to do the exact same thing that we just did with Barnhill. Let's start by me giving you the legal history. This was filed 
the year after Nasby B. Barnhill, 1979. Completely different state, though. Nasby B. Barnhill is in Illinois. Borg vs. Doublechin is in Louisiana. This, however, got all the way up to Louisiana Supreme Court. Now, Borg is a plaintiff. Doublechin is the defendant. The plaintiff, Borg, sues Doublechin for negligence. Very similar to what happened in Nasby B. Barnhill. However, the facts of the circumstance are completely different. While Nasby B. Barnhill was a soccer game, here, Borg vs. Derblichin, we're dealing with a softball game. And in this game, Borg, our plaintiff, is playing second base. Dublichin is on the opposing team. He is a runner that's on first base. We have a man up to bat. The man up to the bat hits a ground ball to the shortstop. Borg, being at second, goes over to second to cover the base to get the forced out. The shortstop tosses him the ball, he catches the ball, steps on the base, and then moves four or five feet away from the base, to the left of the base, so that he can then throw the ball to the first baseman to try to get the double play, to try to get the batsman out. However, as he moves four or five feet to the left, the runner who is at first runs out of the base path and runs right in to Borg, hitting Borg in the jaw with his left arm, causing Borg's jaw to break. So ground ball to shortstop, shortstop flips the ball to Borg at second, Borg steps on the base, slides four or five feet to the left to throw the ball to first. Dublichin, though, before he can throw it, runs out of the base path and delivers a forearm shiver to Borg's jaw, causing his jaw to break. Bork then files a lawsuit and sues Dublichin for negligence. So how do we break down a negligence case? We just did it. We first examine the legal element of duty. We ask, was there a duty that existed between the plaintiff and the defendant? Well, how do we establish if there's a duty? We ask first, was there a relationship present? Do the two individuals have a relationship? If they don't have a relationship, again, then there's no duty, there's no negligence. Well, hopefully, in your mind, you're screaming, yes, of course, they had a relationship. It's the exact same relationship Nasby and Barnhill had. Just because we changed the sport doesn't mean we changed the fact that these participants in the sport have a relationship to one another. So the court said, yes, they have an inherent relationship. Being a participant in the sports, you have a relationship with the other participants, and as a result, you have to act in a certain way. So because there is a relationship, the question then becomes, well, in what way are they supposed to act? Again, we just talked about it. The court established this in SVB Barnhill. The court said that you have to abide by the safety rules of the game. Okay, well, what are the safety rules of baseball? Well, if you actually go and you pull up the rules of baseball, rule 6.01.6 states how a runner is supposed to run a base and what they're not supposed to do. And it says this, quote, if in the judgment of the umpire, a base runner willfully and deliberately interferes with a batted ball or a fielder in the act of fielding a batted ball with the obvious intent to break up a double play, the ball is dead. The umpire shall call the runner out for interference and shall also call the batter runner out because of the action of his teammate. In no event may bases be run or runs scored because of the action by a runner. To sum that up, a runner cannot deliberately interfere with a fielder's ability to make a play. That's the short and sweet of it. So we know that there's a relationship that establishes a duty to abide by the safety rules of the game. We now know what those safety rules state, that the runner is not supposed to or not allowed to interfere with a fielder's act. So we then have to go, after we've established what the duty is, to the second legal element and look at, well, was there a breach of that duty? And here's where we can get into an interesting conversation. Because in teaching this and talking with students about this case for, for years, one of the things that people that know baseball oftentimes will bring up is they will say, well, breaking up a play at second base is a part of the game. We see runners all the time slide in with their cleats high, maybe do a pop-up slide where they hit the bag and pop up real quick to try to make it more difficult for the person fielding the ball 
to throw it to first. Now, the important part of the rule is that the runner cannot willfully or deliberately interfere. Well, if I'm just sliding into second base and I happen to keep sliding all the way through the base and hit you, I'm not willfully trying to interfere with you. You can argue that it just happened as a result of me, the runner, trying to make a normal baseball play. Where we get into willful and deliberate interference is when the runner goes outside of what is a normal play or a normal way of acting. So students will oftentimes say, well, it's not really clear cut because runners oftentimes will try to do things to interfere with the throw. They might be doing it on purpose, but if it's still part of the normal run of the play, then it's really hard to tell if it's on purpose or just part of the game. And I agree. That defense is actually the exact defense that Dublichin uses. Dublichin says, there's an assumption of risk, just like Nasby B. Barnhill. Part of the game is that if you're playing second base and covering second base on a throw, that you could be run into by the runner coming from first to second. And therefore, if it's part of the game, by playing the game, by stepping onto the field, I'm assuming the risks of potentially getting injured as a result of that. That's Dublichin's argument. But we need, as people studying sport and rec law, we need to also think about this from the other side, what we often call playing devil's advocate. So we know what the defense would argue with breach, but what would the plaintiff argue here? Think back to the key facts that I gave you, because there's one key fact here that should really stand out to you that helps us address whether this was willful and deliberate. Hopefully in your mind, you're pointing to the fact that I said the collision occurred four to five feet to the left of second base. If you're not, then ask yourself right now, well, why does that matter? Because for a base runner to run outside of the base path, the base path is literally a straight line between the first base and second base. For them to run off that straight line in and of itself is a violation of the rules of baseball. A runner is supposed to stay on the base path. So for them to run four to five feet away from that base path shows an act of deliberate intent. They are now deliberately going out of their way, breaking a rule to try to interfere with a throw. So the devil advocate side to the assumption of risk argument is that running four to five feet outside of a base path is not an inherent part of the game. If it's not an inherent part of the game, remember, the court established in Nasvibi Barnhill that I cannot assume the risk of something that is not an inherent part of the game. In this case, in Boric v. Dublichin, they said the exact same thing. They said, yes, Dublichin breached his duty. He ran four to five feet outside the base path to willfully and deliberately interfere with the second baseman, Boric, trying to make a play. So we know the duty. We know that the court said that that duty was breached. The last two legal elements, did the breach of that duty actually cause damages? If we remove the actions of Dublichin, we remove and say, nope, he didn't run four to five feet outside and he didn't run directly in to Bork. If we remove that, were there any damages? No. If we take that out of the case, there's no contact, which means there's no damages. So because we can now link the direct act of running four to five feet outside of the base path directly into Bork, because we can link that to the damages of a broken jaw, we have causation and we have damages. Just like in Nasby v. Barnhill, in this case, Bork v. Dublichin, one year later, the Louisiana Supreme Court establishes legal precedent that says there is a duty for people participating in a sport, there is a duty for them to abide by the safety rules. And if you breach those safety rules and that breach leads to damages, then you are liable. Because at the conclusion of the case, the judge said, quote, players do not assume the risk of crazy behavior that is unexpected or unsportsmanlike. They go on to say, reckless lack of concern for others participating is not something that you can assume the risk of. Now, collisions at second base are, are fairly common. And so we see these even nowadays. We see this not only in professional baseball, we also see this at youth baseball. 
It's important for us as maybe coaches or administrators, people that put on leagues, it's important for us to teach our kids or teach the athletes what these rules are so that way we can avoid injury first and foremost, but also avoid potential litigation or lawsuits. The last case I want to look at is, again, another very well-known one called Hackbart versus the Cincinnati Bengals. We're dealing right around the same time frame with this case. This is a 1979 case, so we're just slowly progressing through time. But this one has a couple of really important differentiating factors that we need to point out. First and foremost, this case was heard at the United States Court of Appeals for the 10th Circuit. This is a federal case. The first two cases we talked about were state cases, state of Illinois, state of Louisiana. So the legal precedent that is established only applies to the jurisdiction of the court that the case was heard in. The first case that we talked about, Nazareth v. Barnhill, the legal precedent really only applies to the state of Illinois, and Borg v. Dublichin really only applies to the state of Louisiana. However, Hackfart sues, Hackfart is a football player, played for the Broncos, sued the Cincinnati Bengals. And because the fact that the NFL is made up of teams that encompass different states, when teams travel to play other teams, they're engaging in what's called interstate commerce. As a result, any issues that deal with interstate commerce, by definition, are federal issues. So they go to the federal court system. So since this was filed by a player versus a team, it has to be federal because interstate commerce, and more importantly, it establishes legal precedent not for just one state, but for the entire country. This decision holds much more weight across the entire country than the first two. The first two established present in their states and actually are pointed to oftentimes by other states as justification. But Hackfart versus Bengals is much more important because it actually has binding legal precedent everywhere in the United States. The other key fact I want to point out before we get into what happened is this is the first case that we're talking about where the plaintiff isn't suing another participant. They're suing the team, what we would call a corporate entity. In sport, in recreation, really in anywhere, the organization that employs the person can be held what we call vicariously liable for the actions of their employees. Why does this matter? Well, this ties back into that discussion of commercialization. Hackbart is injured as a result of another player whose name is Clark. Instead of suing Clark, who, 1979, might have been making $200,000 a year playing football. So instead of suing someone who makes $200,000 a year, why not sue the corporate entity, the organization that's in charge for employing Clark, and try to get much more money? This is a trend that we oftentimes see in the law. Instead of going after the employee, we go after the organization. Because the courts have established throughout many, many years and many, many lawsuits that the corporate entity is vicariously liable for the actions of its employees. So that's a key differentiating fact with this case I also want to point to. But regardless of this idea of vicarious liability, we're still dealing with the same basic argument where one player is harmed by another player. And we're looking at the court to see whether they can ask for the injuring party the other player or the other player's team to pay for their damages that they sustained. In this case, Hackbart was a defensive player for the Broncos. During one game, the Cincinnati Bengals were on offense. Their quarterback threw a pass that was intercepted by the defense by one of Hackbart's teammates. Hackbart tries to block for his teammate's return and ends up falling to the ground. The teammate keeps going. The play keeps going up ahead. Hackbart gets up to one knee and kind of picks his head up to watch the return upfield when Clark, an offensive player from the Bengals, runs up behind him and clubs Hackbart in the back of the neck with his forearm. Think of just a major karate chop with his forearm to the back of Hackbart's neck. Hackbart falls back to the ground. However, no foul was called during the play. Hackbart did not seek any medical attention, but he did report that a little bit of pain in his neck to his trainers. Regardless of that, he wasn't giving any attention or anything else. He continues to play for two more weeks in games before finally being released by the Broncos. 
after he was released, he went to the doctor for the pain he was still having in his neck, and they discovered that he had a broken bone in his neck. So he had a serious neck injury. So what does Hackbar do? He files a lawsuit suing the Cincinnati Bengals, claiming that they are vicariously liable for the negligent actions of Clark. Well, now this should be old hat to you. What do we do? First, we have to assess, is there a duty? How do we know if there's a duty? We look to see if there's a relationship. When we're dealing with vicarious liability, we're not looking for is there a relationship between the Bengals and Hackbart. We're looking for is there a relationship between the Bengals employee, Clark, and Hackbart. We've already established this in two other cases, Nasby B. Barnhill and Vork B. Dublichin, that yes, there is an inherent relationship based off the fact that they are both participating in the same sporting event. So they have an inherent relationship. So we know that there is a duty the question is, what is that duty? Just as in the other cases, the duty is to abide by the safety rules of the game. As this court says in their decision, to refrain from reckless misconduct towards other players. So we know that there's a duty. The next question is, was that duty breached? Here again, we have to ask, what would a reasonable, prudent person have done in Clark's situation. What would another football player for the Bengals have done in that exact same situation? If they would have acted differently, then we have the potential for liability. Or if they would have acted the same way, but that act raises the risk of injury substantially, then we can still have negligence. So we looked to see if another person would act the same, and we looked at the act itself to determine if it increased the risk of sustaining an injury. And in doing that, we can also ask, just as we have before, well, what risks are inherently a part of the sport in question? What risks are inherently a part of football? Well, in football, there's a big chance you could get injured because you're tackling. There's physical contact literally on every single play. People are running into each other. People are tackling each other. People are pushing each other, shoving. All of those things are part of the game. But they're part of the game in very specific ways as dictated by the rules. So the rules, for example, dictate, especially nowadays, that you cannot hit a defenseless receiver. We already mentioned that when we talked about Nasby Barnhill. If a receiver is jumping and stretching for a ball and their feet hit the ground, you can't just spear them with your helmet because in that case, they are defenseless. They don't have a chance to protect their body from the incoming impact. So you can't just do whatever you want on the field. One of the other rules that football dictates is you cannot hit a person from a blind side or from behind. You have to hit them straight on or from the side so that way they can see you coming. The, again, the idea there is they can see you coming so they can protect themselves from the conduct, embrace themselves, so that way they don't get hurt. In this case, I told you that Clark hit him from behind. Clark came up behind him and karate chopped him with his forearm in his neck. Hitting a player in their neck from behind is a violation of the rules. However, one of the key facts that I gave you, and this is something the Bengals argued, there was no foul cut on the play. So if there's no foul call on the play, does that mean that the rules were violated? Bengals argued they weren't violating the rules, that this was just a normal course of action in the play, that this is how players act, this is how any other player would have acted, and because there was no foul, this is a normal part that I'm assuming the risk of. Hackbart's side argued something a little bit different. They said just because something wasn't called a foul doesn't mean it wasn't a foul. We have instances all the time in sports where penalties are called that shouldn't have been or penalties are missed that should have been called. Relying on the referee in that moment to determine if something is a penalty or not is not enough, Hackbar argued. He said, we should be able to go back and look at this instance in the past to examine it again and determine whether that is a violation of the rules or not. In his side, the plaintiff's side argued that the act of getting hit in the neck from behind when you are kneeling on the ground, not involved in the play, that that is not a part of the game, that the rules specifically say it is not part of the game, and that, yes, the refs didn't call it, but they just missed it because they didn't see it. The courts end up ruling with Hackbart. The courts said, yes, the duty was breached. They said that hitting a player in the neck was reckless, and it went against the safety rules of the game. 
They established that there was a duty to abide by the safety rules, to refrain from reckless misconduct towards other players. They established that it was a breach, even though physicality and hitting people is part of the game, the act in question rose above what is part of the game and was reckless. Now we get to the third element, this idea of causation. And again, this can be a little bit tricky. If I was arguing this case and I were the Cincinnati Bengals, one of the things that I would argue for is what we call an intervening act. An intervening act is something else that occurs that causes the damages. With an intervening act, it doesn't matter if I have a duty and if I've breached it. Because it's not just having the first two elements, we have to have all four. So with an intervening act, I would say, yes, okay, my client has a duty. Yes, my client breached that duty. But what my client did isn't the reason that Hackbart is injured. Something else caused the injury. And in arguing this, what you would point towards is you would point to the time frame in question. Because remember what I said, Hackpart did not get medical attention immediately. He did report some pain, but he didn't get any medical attention until three weeks later. He played another two weeks, and then he was cut, and then he got medical attention. So I would argue, well, how do we know that it was the hit from Clark that caused a broken neck? A lot of things could have happened in those three weeks. Maybe he was in a car wreck. Maybe someone else, he got in a bar fight, and someone punched him in his neck. How do we know that this hit directly caused that injury? So I would offer that up if I was the defendant or if I was the defense attorney, and I would try to find if there was an intervening act, something else we can point to as the cause of the damages. However, in this case, they weren't able to argue any of that. They weren't able to point to anything else that might have happened. In this case, judge found they were able to link the breach of duty directly to the broken neck. In other words, they said the breach of duty, the player acting in a reckless manner, directly caused Hackbart to break his neck. As a result, we have all four legal elements. We've already talked about assumption of risk not working as a defense when we talked about breach. So just like with the other two cases, they found for the plaintiff. This case, especially in the last two years, has been a really great one to turn to because we had an incident with an individual named Miles Garrett. Let me just describe it for you if you haven't seen it. Miles Garrett, defensive player for the Cleveland Browns. They were playing against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Miles Garrett tries to tackle the quarterback, an individual named Mason Rudolph. And in tackling him, he ends up ripping off Rudolph's helmet. Now, they jarred. They, they talked back and forth, yelled at each other. Miles Garrett accused Rudolph of calling him the N-word. Miles Garrett still had the helmet in hand and then proceeded to swing the helmet at Mason Rudolph overhead, actually coming into contact and hitting him in the shoulder pad. Now, in this case, Miles Garrett was thrown out of the game, a penalty was caused, and he was actually suspended for the rest of the season. The question I always ask or get asked is, could Miles Garrett have been sued and lost that lawsuit for a claim of negligence? In other words, could Mason Rudolph, the quarterback, who had his helmet ripped off, who was beaten over the head with his own helmet, could he have won a negligence lawsuit against Miles Garrett? If you remember that time, a lot of people in the sports media actually brought this up and said, oh, he should sue, he blah, blah, blah. Well, let's go through and assess this based off what we just talked about with Hackbart versus the Bengals. Is there a duty? Yeah, there's a duty. We know that there's an inherent relationship. That duty is to refrain from reckless misconduct. Was there a breach of that duty? Yeah, I think ripping off someone's helmet and then hitting them with it multiple times and swinging it at them is definitely a breach of that duty. The question comes to the causation and damages, though. With Hackbart, we had damages of a broken neck. With Rudolph, there are no damages, at least from everything that was reported. Miles Garrett got lucky and didn't hit him in the head. He ended up hitting him in the shoulder pad. The shoulder pad protects the shoulder. Rudolph didn't suffer any damages. So if there's no damages, there's also no causation. If we don't have damages and causation, we don't have negligence. So while it looks awful, and I think everyone would agree that Miles Garrett did something he should not have done and that he should have been suspended, people would even argue they should have been kicked out of the league, from a legal perspective, 
He is not liable. He is not negligent because he has not fulfilled all four of the legal elements required. That's how we can take the legal precedent of some of these cases and what courts have ruled on in the past and then apply it going forward to our current cases. So hopefully our conversation today has helped illustrate a couple of really key principles that you need to know if you are interested in studying, working, or just a fan of the sport management industry. First and foremost, it highlights the importance of participants understanding what legal obligations or duties they have to one another when they're participating in any type of sporting event. It also establishes legal precedent for us that we as individuals working in the sport industry have to have knowledge of, so that way we understand if we can be held vicariously liable just like the Bengals were held vicariously liable in the Hackbart lawsuit. And finally, as fans, this conversation has hopefully provided you some context so that when you're engaging in or you hear others having conversations about legal liability or athletes suing one another for actions that occur on the field, now you should have a frame of reference that you can go back to and cite and talk about so that way you can help educate other individuals or if nothing else, you can understand the conversations that are going on on TV at the time. If you have any questions about the legal liability of participants to one another or these ideas of vicarious liability and organizations being held accountable for the actions of players, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at The Sport Professor. Follow us to stay up to date on new upcoming episodes and give us suggestions as well. Until next time, though, we hope you enjoyed this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast.